0: When I first started in uh, investigating child abuse back in 1996, the neglect and abuse that we saw back then was more uh, from parents, alcohol abuse, uh, parents who were alcoholics, and there was a lot of neglect involved.
1: This is Debbie Richmond. She started working for the Bristol, Tennessee Police Department some 30 years ago eventually making her way up to lieutenant in the detective division. Her goal was always to work with children and families. Policing has changed a lot since she first started.
0: But now that has transitioned over the years that we're seeing parents' abuse of opioids, which is causing a lot of issues with raising your children. And it's a driving force for neglect, and for abuse and we are, it's almost an epidemic in this area with especially young parents being addicted to opioids and then the consequences from that and the fallout with the children.
1: Welcome back to Insickness and In Health. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. In this season, we're tackling a subject that's been making headlines for years now, the opioid overdose epidemic. Yes, it's widely covered, but there are nuances, subtleties to this health crisis that never really make the news. Like so many other public health problems, Opioid abuse has downstream consequences. The vicious cycle of social and economic effects, a chaotic lifestyle, isolation from friends and family, job loss. There are, of course, psychological and physical harms, infections, damage to vital organs, even death. Opioid addiction is not, in the strictest sense of the word, contagious or hereditary. But as opioid abuse has soared in the United States, there's a population of incidental addicts that's growing. Babies born with addiction, often to mothers who had no idea they could pass their condition on to their children. According to Debbie Richmond, this isn't really anything new. It's just a new symptom of an old problem.
0: Yes, it's a revolving door. Um, Drugs, abuse, neglect of children is a revolving door. When I first became a police officer, I treated these, uh, or I was involved, with the mothers and fathers of children. And their children may have been sexually abused, uh, may have been physically abused, a lot of neglect. And I saw a lot of that, and most of that involves alcohol and some drugs.
1: Debbie Richmond sees a generational thread in babies born addicted. She's able to trace that baby's condition back, not simply to the mother, but to the mother's parents and further.
0: But now I'm seeing those children who were victims, they're now adults. And they're repeating the same process that their parents did. And if you think about it, we learn by what we see. And what we're taught and if you've not been taught any different and that's all you see you don't know that it's wrong you don't know that it's bad or just how bad it is and you don't know what to do about it if even if you did know that it was bad
1: the parenting issue is twofold Children are neglected or abused, and so think neglectful or abusive behaviors are a normal part of parenting. Children see their parents using drugs and learn that's a normal way of coping. Without a clear intervention, this pattern of intergenerational trauma repeats itself. When parents use drugs, Debbie says, they don't just put their babies at risk for opioid addiction. They fail to respond to their child's needs.
0: so if you're a parent the drugs may make you feel like you're a good parent and that you're being observant and the drugs kind of trick you into thinking that and you're not alert and see a lot of babies come home from the hospital and they're very very agitated because they're, they they Are being weaned off of drugs and they cry a lot. So I've seen babies smothered purposefully uh, and also through neglect. So I've investigated a lot and when I look back on them it's very tragic and it makes me very sad.
1: People like Debbie, who investigate cases of child abuse and neglect, have been around for a long time. But what's been missing, she says, is community engagement, an ongoing commitment to teach traumatized children and their parents a new normal, to help lead them out the revolving door. But Debbie sees something different with this generation, something that may finally break this revolving door of addiction, abuse, neglect, and trauma. A spike in babies born with opioid addiction has made the cycle more visible and the community is waking up.
2: I remember when I started to work in the NICU, you know, we would see just a couple of babies who who had withdrawal symptoms or, you know, were experiencing neonatal abstinence syndrome, and it
1: it wasn't an everyday occurrence for sure. This is Lisa Carter. She's the CEO of Niswanger Children's Hospital in Johnson City, Tennessee, about 25 miles from where
2: Lieutenant Debbie Richmond is based. And then over time, it was like, wow, the number of these babies are increasing. And then, you know, I stepped out of a staff nurse role and obviously got involved in hospital administration. And we started pulling numbers and really looking at data, and we really started seeing you know, the number of babies in our NICU increase. We started seeing a lot of different types of care needs coming into the unit.
1: About eight years ago, Lisa Carter noticed a new trend. She'd been promoted from staff nurse into hospital administration. Census data and other studies told her to expect a lower birth rate, so less of a need for neonatal hospital services. But that's not what happened. The numbers of newborns needing a neonatal intensive care unit were going up. This was the beginning of a spike in NAS, or neonatal abstinence syndrome.
2: And what we found was that really the, the care within the unit was really not adequate for any of the babies because you would have a, a baby actively withdrawing beside of a micro preemie or in this proximity, and the noise levels were through the roof. The hospital had to hire a lot more staff and open a separate
1: neonatal intensive care unit for babies in withdrawal. Other neonatal intensive care units often welcome volunteers to lend a hand to help comfort preemies and other sick newborns. But babies with neonatal abstinence syndrome were more than their volunteers could handle.
2: We have a lot of people who want to volunteer within the unit and help the babies, and and they really think they're they're coming in to, to care for a normal newborn. and And really, it's a different picture because they're very, very difficult to console, just because of the the continued crying, and it. it's it's very loud, and very shrill, also very much hypertonic. I mean, the, their muscles are are very sensitive, uh, reflexes are sensitive. You know, just the normal reflexes you see in a newborn are extremely hyperactive. Um, Anything from a suck reflex to just normal head control. I mean, you can honestly hold the baby up and their backs are so stiff and their heads are so stiff, you you don't see that head lag like you would with a normal baby just because their reflexes are so hyper.
1: Babies born addicted to opioids have withdrawal symptoms analogous to those of an adult. Everything from yawning, sneezing, and sweating, to fevers, vomiting, diarrhea, weight loss, and seizures. They're in pain and cry inconsolably. It's difficult to hear of something like this happening to an infant. Leagues more difficult to witness. And that, Lisa says, can be a major problem for the women who bring these children into the world.
2: We actually did a, a research study um, with some of the nurses' perceptions and you know unfortunately, what we find often is that people see the babies as a victim and they they want to blame the moms. And we've recognized that we really had to do a lot of education about the physiology of addiction, really, what happens to the brain um, when you are addicted to these substances, to really provide that compassionate care to both the baby and the family, because we really do want to provide compassionate care to that mom, as well as the baby, because you know she's struggling with whatever issue um, within her own life.
1: These discussions reveal much about how we think and feel about drug users. When it's just their own health that's at stake, we have an easier time acknowledging their life struggles and mustering empathy for them. But we feel differently when a newborn's involved about a baby's innocence and a mother's culpability, of suffering caused by someone else. And while no mother chooses to have a child with neonatal abstinence syndrome, we find ourselves feeling she should have known better. But how exactly to educate people about neonatal abstinence syndrome, to stop this from happening, remains in question because it's a huge issue in the country right now. Between 2000 and 2012, rates of neonatal abstinence syndrome in the United States increased by a factor of five. In Tennessee, between 2000 and 2007, over a third of pregnant women on Medicaid were prescribed opioids at some point during pregnancy. They didn't use these drugs illegally. They used them under the supervision of a doctor.
3: Um, My name is Ashley Harrod, and I am the NAS nurse educator in my county for the Sullivan County Health Department.
1: The Tennessee county where Ashley works, Sullivan, is just up the road from Niswanger Children's Hospital in northeastern Tennessee. This part of the state has one of the highest rates of neonatal abstinence syndrome in the country. Ashley's job is to spread the word about neonatal abstinence syndrome by talking to women, learning what they don't know, and educating them about their bodies and their choices.
3: What I do is I go to the medication assisted treatment facilities, the facilities that prescribe Suboxone and Subutex. Um, I go there. I go to our county jail. I go to halfway houses, girls' homes, pretty much anywhere I can get my foot in the door. Um, and I teach about birth control. I Educate people on, you know, NAS in our area because there's not a lot of awareness in our
1: area. The problem, Ashley says, isn't simply that addicted mothers carry their babies to term without realizing that their addiction is affecting the fetus. It's that so many of these mothers never intended to have a child in the first place.
3: So, with this, um, I will say. In the United States as a whole, 50%, nearly 50% of pregnancies are unintended. But when you look at um, women who are on opiates, then that percentage jumps to 86%. So we have a high percentage of women that it's, it's unintended pregnancy.
1: So you've got a high percentage of women using opioids who are becoming pregnant. Women for whom having a child isn't a consideration until they're already pregnant. But as Ashley has seen, this is less a matter of negligence or apathy than it is one of ignorance.
3: Birth control is not common sense. It's not a common sense thing. So the biggest thing with um, contraception is is the lack of knowledge. And you know there like I said, there's been a study that was done and it, it proves people just they're unaware. The
1: study that Ashley's referring to in Knoxville, Tennessee the health department surveyed nearly 300 women at opioid addiction treatment clinics about contraception. Essentially, it was a pop quiz on preventing pregnancy, true false questions, and they got only 23% of them right. 80% of the women had had at least one unplanned pregnancy. Ashley's job is to teach these women about everything from abstinence to the pill, depot and IUDs, to vasectomies. She teaches teenagers, women who are already mothers, and women who are using drugs or are in recovery. She teaches them that they don't have to get pregnant if they aren't ready and don't want to.
3: You know, we're not, we're not trying to push it on um, just the people that are using a substance. Of course, the people that are using substances it can lead to NAS. So, of course, you know, we want to make sure that they know, hey, you know, you don't want to get pregnant. You are, you know, part of recovery. You're in a, a clinic. You're getting counseling and therapy. If a child is not something you want right now, you can prevent it. It's, it's preventable.
1: And for some of those mothers who do give birth to a baby with neonatal abstinence syndrome, Ashley says it can be a
3: shock. I hear females that are very tearful, and they say, you know, I when I was on, you know, an opiate, I wasn't told that my baby could possibly be born with a diagnosis of NAS. I've never met a mom out in the community that said, you know, I hate my child, I hope they have NAS. Never met a mom like that, ever. Ashley says
1: it's important to hammer home exactly what the symptoms of neonatal abstinence syndrome are, Because no matter how hard she works to prevent unplanned pregnancies, some women will get pregnant unintentionally at the wrong time, including women who are using opioids. And those babies need the right kind of care.
3: So the symptoms, they do vary. They're scored on a Finnegan scale. And the symptoms, um, there's there's quite a long list of symptoms, but we're seeing the high-pitched crying They're inconsolable. Um, Feeding doesn't help. Changing doesn't help. Swaddling, you know, um, you just can't stop the the crying. They are experiencing tremors. Um, Some of them, you know, they'll yawn. They'll sneeze, you know, repeatedly. Vomiting, diarrhea. Sometimes um, they have places on their skin that kind of... They molt, <laughs> almost. Um, they, some of them, if it's severe enough, they can have seizures. Um, lights and loud noises, that's one of the biggest things that I teach parents, especially taking a, a child that's been diagnosed with NAS home. Um, you know, lights and loud noises, need to be kept um, at a minimum they have um, excessive sucking so it's like that that sucking reflex is never fulfilled Um, some of them you know they'll have fever or um, you know rapid breathing Um, they their noses are really stuffy sleeping problems slow weight gain of course especially if they're having, um, you know, vomiting and diarrhea, um, sweating. The withdrawal symptoms of someone coming off of a substance, an adult, that's what we're seeing in our babies.
1: Imagine bringing your baby home from the hospital and witnessing these violent symptoms of withdrawal. It's a tremendous burden to bear to feel you did this. Ashley says she hears stories from parents who are in denial, who don't realize their baby's in withdrawal, even after they've spent time in the neonatal intensive care unit and a doctor's
3: diagnosed neonatal abstinence syndrome. Because I do ask these parents, well, how are they doing now? And I, I always get, well, he's fine, she's fine. She's fine, he's fine. What a, You know, they're fine. I mean, I, I get stories, you know, kind of like that all the time. I get stories of... um No, they didn't withdraw. Um, They just, you know, they were just shaking a little bit, or they were just sneezing so often.
1: Ashley doesn't blame these parents. Sometimes, she says, it's as simple as they're not knowing the symptoms of withdrawal. And even if they are in denial, she doesn't feel that it's her job to pass judgment. Judgment? just makes it harder to get the parents and their babies the help they need
3: that's not why i go and and do what i do and and talk about things um i just want them to know if they need any type of assistance whether it's contraception help with um you know baby things help with um, housing help with food pantries anything like that that's why i am i'm there Ashley has a
1: teenage daughter, and she admits that she'd rather her daughter wait until after marriage to have sex. And like any other parent, she'd prefer for her daughter to never take drugs. But she's seen that wishful thinking fails all too often, so she takes a different approach.
3: And this is my own personal philosophy, is when you are quiet about a situation, the situation is not going to go away. So with my daughter, I continually, I talk to her. I talk to her about the drugs in this area. I talk to her about NAS. I talk to her about birth control. Um, I've told her several times, you know, if and when that time comes that she wants to um, be sexually active, if she is uncomfortable with coming to me, go to one of my friends. I'm okay with that. And that is just one of the things that, you know, I've been asked several times about, well, you don't teach abstinence. Of course I do. And I say, however, have you ever run across a 15-year-old male that says, oh, I don't have a condom. I'm not going to do this. No, you don't. It just does not happen. The reality, I would love for my daughter, every parent wants this, you know, wait till they get married um, to do things, stay away from drugs, you know, all those aspects of life. But in reality, I can tell you, it's not happening. Teenagers are having sex. Everybody's having sex. There are a lot of people using drugs. So I think the most important thing is that open line of communication.
1: Ashley wants to help women plan when they get pregnant to help parents struggling with addiction, to make sure babies with neonatal abstinence syndrome get the care they need. But she knows they won't listen or accept that help if she judges or blames. Would you accept help from someone who looked down on you? And the help that's offered? It needs to fit with the everyday reality of how people live, not with how we wish things were. Education's clearly an important piece of the puzzle, and there's clearly a role for experts and professionals. But this is one of those problems where it really does take a village.
4: You know, the most difficult part of it was after being in the NICU with him and just, you know, he was having um, a lot of tremors and uh, not not necessarily seizures, but my wife kind of called them convulsions or seizures. I mean, you know, but they were, he he was just, like, his poor little back was just bleeding from where he was kind of bouncing on the isolate, and they tried to pat it, and they tried to, um, we thought he had been injured somehow when they were during the delivery, but it was just really that, that piece from the withdrawal.
1: This is Chris Miller. He's talking about his adopted son, Levi, who was born with neonatal abstinence syndrome. Chris and his wife already had three children of their own when they decided to adopt Levi. They felt that they still had so much more to give, and affirmed in questionnaire after questionnaire that they would accept any child no matter the special needs or challenges.
4: This is something we, we felt very led to do. I've been asked a couple of times about different pieces of that, and I think what's really interesting uh, relative to the discussion that we're having today is you know, one of the first checklist items, so to speak, that you'll go through when you go through the adoption process is what uh, exposures are you willing to deal with in terms of drugs and alcohol specifically.
1: Chris and his wife had been considering adoption for a long time. For years, they'd been going on international medical mission trips, working in orphanages, and sponsoring children through an organization called Compassion International, and they felt that it was time to bring that work one step further into their home. So when they were asked if they were willing to adopt a child that some prospective parents wouldn't, say a biracial child, or a child with the potential to be born with neonatal abstinence syndrome, they prayed about it their hearts told them that this was something they had to do.
4: Um, but yeah, it was just something that was very big on our heart, and uh, and it has been an absolutely amazing journey I can't say enough about.
1: But still, meeting their son Levi for the first time, it was different than with their other kids.
4: You're used to the feeding, the sleeping, the burping, the changing diapers, and those sort of things, and that really wasn't wasn't what was happening
1: when they were matched with Levi's mother and learned that she'd used opioids while pregnant with Levi, Chris and his wife Sabrina had some idea of what they'd be facing. But knowing about something and living through it aren't the same thing.
4: There was a lot of uncertainty. Um, I, I work in the medical field. My wife's a physician. So, you know, you think you know these things, and then you, when you're sitting there, And it's your child, and he's having these tremors, and he's not eating, and these monitors and different things. I mean, it's just such a helpless feeling.
1: Chris and Sabrina didn't expect to meet Levi's mother. She'd said she didn't want that contact. But then, after Levi was born, she asked to meet them. Chris described their conversation as brief. He bought her a soda. She shared a little bit about her life. Levi had siblings, six or seven of them, who she didn't care for. And she'd been in prison during part of her pregnancy with Levi.
4: It was a little difficult, um, you know, looking at his mother and trying to feel like, okay, I need to love this person. I need to um, show her compassion because she's been on this journey of her life. And I don't understand that. And it's not my place to judge that. Um, So how can I be part of her journey that maybe you know, somebody not judging her or not doing these sort of things would make her feel better and might change the course of her life.
1: They haven't seen Levi's birth mother since. Chris wonders earnestly if meeting her son's adoptive parents might have brought Levi's mom some sense of acceptance too. But they haven't had the time to dwell on it too long. They had to get to the task of raising a baby with neonatal abstinence syndrome, and that wasn't straightforward
4: it's it's so different to describe, you almost have to hear it because, you know, we have three biological children. I'm familiar with what the I'm hungry, I've got a dirty diaper, I'm I'm uncomfortable, I need a nap, cry sounds like. This is is almost like a I mean, it reminds me of, you know, when you're in the pediatrician's office and you're getting shots or you're getting you know, that type of just pain cry. You know, it was a it was a very um uh, and it was just relentless. I mean, it was on and on and on and on. you know it, it, there was just not a soothing of it, which I mean it would kind of make you cringe a little bit when you when you heard it because you you could tell just you knew audibly that the child was was suffering, I guess would be a good word. I, I hate to you know I mean, I mean that's fair to say they're they're suffering from what they're dealing with, but you know, it's just uncontrollable, and that's but you know that's why they again I, I take my hat off to those nursing staff because they They try and rock the babies and feed them and console them in something that's really not controllable.
1: Eventually, Levi did start to gain weight. The tremors diminished and then stopped. He got to come home. But he was still different from Chris and Sabrina's other children. At two years of age, he showed some speech and sensory issues. He's engaged in headbanging. He's needed physical therapy for legs that wouldn't straighten out. Thanks to TEIS that's Tennessee Early Intervention Services, he has social workers and case managers to help him and his family cope with the residual effects of the syndrome he was born with. There's still a lot we don't know about the long-term effects of neonatal abstinence syndrome, and there are a lot of other social and environmental factors, including cycles of intergenerational trauma, at play. But Levi's symptoms are considered to be part of the syndrome.
4: Now, I think from the baby standpoint, NAS babies, uh, there's still a lot of stigma around people. I mean, that's one of the things that I'm asked, was well, he okay? Is he, you know, and it's, obviously there's varying degrees of, of impact from NAS and what that looks like for the child. But, you know, it's like some folks believe that there's special needs and they're going to have, and, and sometimes that is the case, but there's a, there's a pretty big spectrum of what that looks like for these kids.
1: Chris says they've been lucky with Levi, that he's happy, loving, and making progress all the time. Chris believes that with the right structure, consistency, and home environment, these kids can achieve stability. But Chris thinks there's more to the story than rehabilitating these babies. He and his wife make a point of leaning hard into hate the addiction, love the addict. Opioid addiction isn't new to Chris. His brother struggled with it. A cousin recently died from an overdose. He sees people worthy of redemption, rather than addicts to reject or condemn. He also believes there's something unique about motherhood. It's a moment of hope, a glimpse at a different life. He thinks that blame and persecution close these windows of opportunity to turn one's life around while nurturing another.
4: When I make you feel so guilty and ugly about who you've become that you don't think there's any hope of redemption for your life, then good luck ever getting back on the right track there again, I think that's why as much as you know, as it was kind of a discussion we had to have when we went to meet Levi's mother, we really made the point to say we want to show her as much love and compassion as we can in our conversation with her because maybe that could be a turning point for her and I've said this to other media folks I've talked to, I do believe that for these mothers, a catalyst for them to change and something that can help them change the course of their life can be because I, I, just, I just really believe inherently there's, a, there's, there's something about motherhood, obviously I've not experienced it, but I've seen my wife go through it, and, you know, good friends of ours, that there's, there's a switch that's flipped with that. And I believe that if you can leverage that the right way, and obviously maybe the child's not in the situation where they can go home with that mother from the hospital, but can that start them on the path to recovery, right? Because I think we judge far, far too often
1: Chris acknowledges that babies with neonatal abstinence syndrome suffer real harm. But he doesn't think that makes these mothers criminals. He doesn't think it's so black and white. He thinks that they too have suffered and now bear the additional burden of knowing what they've done. He doesn't see any point in adding to all that suffering.
4: What I hear a lot when you hear people talk, whether it's illicit drugs or, or opioids, is how could a mother do that? How could are they ought to lock them up? Are they ought to do this. Are they ought to throw away the key, that sort of thing. And that, that's not an approach that's going to help us deal with this issue. I mean, it's absolutely not. Um, I, I, don't, I don't believe for a second that any of these mothers are sitting there at night injecting or snorting or whatever they're doing saying, you know what, I really want to harm my child today. They're fighting a battle that they—and and they don't have the support around them. And, and if they have more people that hate on them and still love them, they're never going to overcome that.
1: Even after watching his son experience the pain of opioid withdrawal and ongoing issues related to neonatal abstinence syndrome, Chris stands firmly behind Levi's mother. He thinks she needs love and support, too. The options for pregnant women with substance abuse are changing and improving. More responsible opioid prescribing and greater use of family planning services remain central to preventing neonatal abstinence syndrome. Women who abuse opioids need a lot of help, access to treatment, and access to services so they can be the moms their kids need. There are resources and institutions specifically designed to help pregnant women in active addiction and babies born with neonatal abstinence syndrome. Today's episode of In sickness and in health was produced by Hannah McCarthy and me. Our theme music is by Alan vest you can learn more about this podcast and how to engage with us on social media at in and in that's in sickness and if you or a loved one needs help you can reach out anonymously and confidentially to to SAMHSA's national helpline at 800-662-HELP. That's 800-662-4357. SAMHSA stands for Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. You can also find information online at findtreatment.samhsa.gov. That's findtreatment.samhsa.gov. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This is In Sickness and In Health.